Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We continue this reading with Book 2, Chapter 16, Section 10. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 10. But apart from the creed, we must seek for a surer exposition of Christ's descent to hell. And the word of God furnishes us with one not only pious and holy, but replete with excellent consolation. Nothing had been done if Christ had only endured corporeal death. In order to interpose between us and God's anger, and satisfy his righteous judgment, it was necessary that he should feel the weight of divine vengeance. Whence also it was necessary that he should engage, as it were, at close quarters with the powers of hell and the horrors of eternal death. We lately quoted from the prophet that the, quote, chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, unquote, that he, quote, was bruised for our iniquities, unquote, that he, quote, bore our infirmities, unquote, expressions which intimate that like a sponsor and surety for the guilty, and, as it were, subjected to condemnation, he undertook and paid all the penalties which must have been exacted from them, the only exception being that the pains of death could not hold him. Hence there is nothing strange in its being said that he descended to hell, seeing he endured the death which is inflicted on the wicked by an angry God. It is frivolous and ridiculous to object that in this way the order is perverted, it being absurd that an event which preceded burial should be placed after it, but after explaining what Christ endured in the sight of man, the creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God, to teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption, but that there was a greater and more excellent price, that he bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined man. Section 11. In this sense, Peter says that God raised up Christ, quote, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible he should be holden of it, unquote. Acts 2, verse 24. He does not mention death simply, but says that the Son of God endured the pains produced by the curse and wrath of God, the source of death. How small a matter had it been to come forth securely, and as it were in sport to undergo death, Herein was a true proof of boundless mercy, that he shunned not the death he so greatly dreaded. And there can be no doubt that in the epistle to the Hebrews, the apostle means to teach the same thing when he says that he, quote, was heard and that he feared, unquote, Hebrews 5, verse 7. Some, instead of, quote, feared, unquote, use a term meaning reverence or piety. But how inappropriately is apparent both from the nature of the thing and the form of expression. Christ then praying in a loud voice, and with tears, is heard in that he feared, not so as to be exempted from death, but so as not to be swallowed up of it like a sinner, though standing as our representative. And certainly no abyss can be imagined more dreadful than to feel that you are abandoned and forsaken of God, and not heard when you invoke him, just as if he had conspired your destruction. To such a degree was Christ dejected, that in the depth of his agony he was forced to exclaim, quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Unquote. The view taken by some that he here expressed the opinion of others rather than his own conviction is most improbable, for it is evident that the expression was wrung from the anguish of his inmost soul. We do not, however, insinuate that God was ever hostile to him or angry with him. How could he be angry with the beloved son, with whom his soul was well pleased? Or how could he have appeased the father by his intercession for others, if he were hostile to himself? But this we say, that he bore the weight of the divine anger, that smitten and afflicted he experienced all the signs of an angry and avenging God. Hence Hilary argues that to this descent we owe our exemption from death, 
nor does he dissent from this view in other passages, as when he says, quote, The cross, death, hell, are our life, unquote. And again, quote, The Son of God is in hell, but man is brought back to heaven, unquote. And why do I quote the testimony of a private writer when an apostle asserts the same thing, stating it as one fruit of his victory that he delivered, quote, them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, unquote, Hebrews 2, verse 15. He behoved, therefore, to conquer the fear which incessantly vexes and agitates the breasts of all mortals, and this he could not do without a contest. Moreover, it will shortly appear with greater clearness that his was no common sorrow, was not the result of a trivial cause. Thus, by engaging with the power of the devil, the fear of death, and the pains of hell, he gained the victory, and achieved a triumph, so that we now fear not in death those things which our prince has destroyed. Section 12 Here some miserable creatures who, though unlearned, are however impelled more by malice than ignorance, cry out that I am offering an atrocious insult to Christ, because it were most incongruous to hold that he feared for the safety of his soul. And then, in harsher terms, they urge the calumnious charge that I attribute despair to the Son of God a feeling the very opposite of faith. First, they wickedly raise a controversy as to the fear and dread which Christ felt, though these are openly affirmed by the evangelists. For before the hour of his death arrived, he was troubled in spirit and affected with grief, and at the very onset began to be exceedingly amazed. To speak of these feelings as merely assumed is a shameful evasion. It becomes us, therefore, as Ambrose truly teaches, boldly to profess the agony of Christ, if we are not ashamed of the cross. And certainly, had not his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been a redeemer of bodies only. The object of his struggle was to raise up those who were lying prostrate. And so far is this from detracting from his heavenly glory that his goodness, which can never be sufficiently extolled, becomes more conspicuous in this that he declined not to bear our infirmities. Hence also that solace to our anxieties and griefs which the apostle sets before us. Quote, we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all respects tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Unquote. Hebrews 4 verse 15. These men pretend that a thing in its nature vicious is improperly ascribed to Christ, as if they were wiser than the Spirit of God, who in the same passage reconciles the two things, viz., that he was tempted in all respects, like as we are, and yet was without sin. There is no reason, therefore, to take alarm at infirmity in Christ, infirmity to which he submitted not under the constraint of violence and necessity, but merely because he loved and pitied us. Whatever he spontaneously suffered, detracts in no degree from his majesty. One thing which misleads these detractors is that they do not recognize in Christ an infirmity which was pure and free from every species of taint, inasmuch as it was kept within the limits of obedience. As no moderation can be seen in the depravity of our nature, in which all affections with turbulent impetuosity exceed our due bounds, they improperly apply the same standard to the Son of God. But as he was upright, all his affections were under such restraint as prevented everything like excess. Hence he could resemble us in grief, fear, and dread, but still with this mark of distinction. Thus refuted, they fly off to another cavil, that although Christ feared death, yet he feared not the curse and wrath of God, from which he knew that he was safe. But let the pious reader consider how far it is honorable to Christ to make him more effeminate and timid than the generality of men. Robbers and other malefactors contumaciously hasten to death. Many men magnanimously despise it. Others meet it calmly. If the Son of God was amazed and terror-struck at the prospect of it, where was his firmness or magnanimity? We are even told what in a common death would have been deemed most extraordinary, that in the depth of his agony his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Nor was this a spectacle exhibited to the eyes of others, since it was from a secluded spot that he uttered his groans to his father. And that no doubt may remain, it was necessary that angels should come down from heaven to strengthen him with miraculous consolation. How shamefully effeminate would it have been, as I have observed, to be so excruciated by the fear of an ordinary death as to sweat drops of blood, and not even be revived by the presence of angels. What? Does not that prayer, thrice repeated, Quote, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Unquote. Matthew 26, verse 39, a prayer dictated by incredible bitterness of soul. 
show that Christ had a fiercer and more arduous struggle than with ordinary death. Hence it appears that these triflers, with whom I am disputing, presume to talk of what they know not, never having seriously considered what is meant and implied by ransoming us from the justice of God. It is of consequence to understand aright how much our salvation costs the Son of God. If anyone now asks, Did Christ descend to hell at the time when he deprecated death? I answer that this was the commencement, and that from it we may infer how dire and dreadful were the tortures which he endured while he felt himself standing at the bar of God as a criminal in our stead. And although the divine power of the Spirit veiled itself for a moment, that it might give place to the infirmity of the flesh, we must understand that the trial arising from feelings of grief and fear was such as not to be at variance with faith. And in this was fulfilled what is said in Peter's sermon as to having been loosed from the pains of death, because, quote, it was not possible he could be holden of it, unquote. Acts 2, verse 24. Though feeling, as it were, forsaken of God, he did not cease in the slightest degree to confide in his goodness. This appears from the celebrated prayer in which, in the depth of his agony, he exclaimed, quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Unquote. Matthew 27, verse 46. Amid all his agony, he ceases not to call upon his God, while exclaiming that he is forsaken by him. This refutes the Apollinarian heresy, as well as that of those who are called monothelites. Apollinaris pretended that in Christ the eternal spirit supplied the place of a soul, so that he was only half a man, as if he could have expiated our sins in any other way than by obeying the Father. But where does the feeling or desire of obedience reside but in the soul? And we know that his soul was troubled in order that ours, being free from trepidation, might obtain peace and quiet. Moreover, in opposition to the monothelites, we see that in his human he felt a repugnance to what he willed in his divine nature. I say nothing of his subduing the fear of which we have spoken by a contrary affection. This appearance of repugnance is obvious in the words, quote, Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name, unquote. John 12, verses 27 and 28. Still in this perplexity there was no violent emotion, such as we exhibit while making the strongest endeavors to subdue our own feelings. Section 13. Next follows the resurrection from the dead, without which all that has hitherto been said would be defective. For saying that in the cross, death, and burial of Christ, nothing but weakness appears. Faith must go beyond all these in order that it may be provided with full strength. Hence, although in his death we have an effectual completion of salvation, because by it we are reconciled to God, satisfaction is given to his justice, the curse is removed, and the penalty paid. Still it is not by his death, but by his resurrection, that we are said to be begotten again to a living hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Because as he, by rising again, became victorious over death, so the victory of our faith consists only in his resurrection. The nature of it is better expressed in the words of Paul, quote, who Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, unquote. Romans 4, verse 25. As if he had said, by his death sin was taken away, by his resurrection righteousness was renewed and restored. For how could he by dying have freed us from death if he had yielded to his power? How could he have obtained the victory for us if he had fallen in the contest? Our salvation may be thus divided between the death and the resurrection of Christ. By the former, sin was abolished and death annihilated. By the latter, righteousness was restored and life revived, the power and efficacy of the former being still bestowed upon us by the means of the latter. Paul accordingly affirms that he was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection, Romans 1, verse 4, because he then fully displayed that heavenly power which is both a bright mirror of his divinity and a sure support of our faith, as he also elsewhere teaches that, quote, though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God, unquote, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. In the same sense, in another passage, treating of perfection, he says, quote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, unquote, Philippians 3, verse 10. Immediately after he adds, quote, being made conformable unto his death, unquote, in perfect accordance with this is the passage in Peter, that God, quote, raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, unquote, 1 Peter 1, verse 21. 
not that faith founded merely on his death is vacillating, but that the divine power by which he maintains our faith is most conspicuous in his resurrection. Let us remember, therefore, that when death only is mentioned, everything peculiar to the resurrection is at the same time included, and that there is a like synecdoche in the term resurrection as often as it is used, apart from the death, everything peculiar to death being included. But as by rising again he obtained the victory, and became the resurrection and the life, Paul justly argues, quote, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins, unquote, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Accordingly, in another passage, after exulting in the death of Christ, in opposition to the terrors of condemnation, he thus enlarges, quote, Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, unquote. Romans 8, verse 34. Then, as we have already explained, that the mortification of our flesh depends on communion with the cross, so we must also understand that a corresponding benefit is derived from his resurrection. For as the Apostle says, quote, Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, unquote. Romans 6, verse 4. Accordingly, as in another passage from our being dead with Christ, he inculcates, quote, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, unquote. Colossians 3, verse 5. So from our being risen with Christ, he infers, quote, Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God, unquote. Colossians 3, verse 1. In these words, we are not only urged by the example of a risen Savior to follow newness of life, but are taught that by his power we are renewed unto righteousness. A third benefit derived from it is that, like an earnest, it assures us of our own resurrection, of which it is certain that his is the surest representation. This subject is discussed at length, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But it is to be observed in passing that when he is said to have, quote, risen from the dead, unquote, these terms express the reality both of his death and resurrection, as if it had been said that he died the same death as other men naturally die, and received immortality in the same mortal flesh which he had assumed. Section 14. The resurrection is naturally followed by the ascension into heaven. For although Christ, by rising again, began fully to display his glory and virtue, having laid aside the abject and ignoble condition of a mortal life and the ignominy of the cross, yet it was only by his ascension to heaven that his reign truly commenced. This the apostle shows when he says he ascended, quote, that he might fill all things, unquote, Ephesians 4, verse 10, thus reminding us that, under the appearance of contradiction, there is a beautiful harmony, inasmuch as though he departed from us, it was that his departure might be more useful to us than that presence which was confined in a humble tabernacle of flesh during his abode on the earth. Hence John, after repeating the celebrated invitation, quote, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, unquote, immediately adds, quote, The Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Unquote. John 7, verses 37 and 39. This our Lord himself also declared to his disciples, quote, It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. Unquote. John 16, verse 7. To console them for his bodily absence, he tells them that he will not leave them comfortless, but will come again to them in a manner invisible indeed, but more to be desired, because they were then taught by a sure experience that the government which he had obtained and the power which he exercises would enable his faithful followers not only to live well, but also to die happily. And indeed we see how much more abundantly his spirit was poured out, how much more gloriously his kingdom was advanced, how much greater power was employed in aiding his followers and discomfiting his enemies. Being raised to heaven, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sight, not that he might cease to be with his followers, who are still pilgrims on the earth, but that he might rule both heaven and earth more immediately by his power, or rather the promise which he made to be with us, even to the end of the world, he fulfilled by his ascension, by which, as his body has been raised above all heavens, so his power and efficacy have been propagated and diffused beyond all the bounds of heaven and earth. This I prefer to explain in the words of Augustine rather than my own, quote, Through death Christ was to go to the right hand of the Father, whence he is to come to judge the quick and the dead, and that in corporal presence, according to the sound doctrine and rule of faith. 
for in spiritual presence he was to be with them after his ascension, unquote. In another passage he is more full and explicit, quote, In regard to ineffable and invisible grace is fulfilled what he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, unquote. Matthew 28, verse 20. But in regard to the flesh, which the word assumed, in regard to his being born of a virgin, in regard to his being apprehended by the Jews, nailed to the tree, taken down from the cross, wrapped in linen clothes, laid in the sepulcher, and manifested on his resurrection, it may be said, Me ye have not always with you. Why? Because in bodily presence he conversed with his disciples forty days, and leading them out where they saw but followed not, he ascended into heaven, and is not here. For there he sits at the right hand of the Father, and yet he is here, for the presence of his Godhead was not withdrawn. Therefore, as regards his divine presence, we have Christ always. As regards his bodily presence, it was truly said to the disciples, Me ye have not always. For a few days the church had him bodily present. Now she apprehends him by faith, but sees him not by the eye. Unquote. Section 15. Hence it is immediately added that he, quote, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father, unquote. A similitude borrowed from princes who have their assessors to whom they commit the office of ruling and issuing commands. Thus Christ, in whom the Father is pleased to be exalted, and by whose hand he is pleased to reign, is said to have been received up and seated on his right hand. Mark 16, verse 19. As if it had been said that he was installed in the government of heaven and earth, and formally admitted to possession of the administration committed to him, and not only admitted for once, but to continue until he descend to judgment. For so the apostle interprets when he says that the Father, quote, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this earth, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and given him to be the head over all things to the church, unquote. You see to what end he is so seated, namely, that all creatures both in heaven and earth should reverence his majesty, be ruled by his hand, do him implicit homage, and submit to his power. All that the apostles intend, when they so often mention his seat at the Father's hand, is to teach that everything is placed at his disposal. Those, therefore, are in error, who suppose that his blessedness merely is indicated. We may observe that there is nothing contrary to this doctrine in the testimony of Stephen, that he saw him standing, Acts 7, verse 56, the subject here considered being not the position of his body, but the majesty of his empire, sitting, meaning nothing more than presiding in the judgment seat of heaven. Section 16. From this doctrine, faith derives manifold advantages. First, it perceives that the Lord, by his ascension to heaven, has opened up the access to the heavenly kingdom, which Adam had shut. For having entered it in our flesh, as it were in our name, it follows, as the apostle says, that we are in a manner now seated in heavenly places, not entertaining a mere hope of heaven, but possessing it in our head. Secondly, faith perceives that his seat beside the Father is not without great advantage to us. Having entered the temple not made with hands, he constantly appears as our advocate and intercessor in the presence of our Father, directs attention to his own righteousness, so as to turn it away from our sins, so reconciles him to us as by his intercession to pay for us a way of access to his throne, presenting it to miserable sinners, to whom it would otherwise be an object of dread, as replete with grace and mercy. Thirdly, it discerns his power, on which depend our strength, might, resources, and triumph over hell. Quote, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Spoiling his foes, he gave gifts to his people, and daily loads them with spiritual riches. He thus occupies his exalted seat, that thence, transferring his virtue unto us, he may quicken us to spiritual life, sanctify us by his spirit, and adorn his church with various graces, by his protection preserve it safe from all harm, and by the strength of his hand curb the enemies raging against his cross and our salvation. In fine, that he may possess all power in heaven and earth, until he have utterly routed all his foes who are also ours, and completed the structure of his church. Such is the true nature of the kingdom, such the power which the Father has conferred upon him, until he arrive to complete the last act by judging the quick and the dead. Section 17 
Christ indeed gives his followers no dubious proofs of present power, but as his kingdom in the world is in a manner veiled by the humiliation of a carnal condition, faith is most properly invited to meditate on the visible presence which he will exhibit on the last day, for he will descend from heaven in visible form, in like manner as he was seen to ascend, and appear to all with the ineffable majesty of his kingdom, the splendor of immortality, the boundless power of divinity, and an attending company of angels. Hence we are told to wait for the Redeemer against that day on which he will separate the sheep from the goats, and the elect from the reprobate, and when not one individual, either of the living or the dead, shall escape his judgment. From the extremities of the universe shall be heard the clang of the trumpet summoning all to his tribunal, both those whom that day shall find alive, and those whom death shall previously have removed from the society of the living. There are some who take the words, quick and dead, in a different sense, and indeed, some ancient writers appear to have hesitated as to the exposition of them. But our meaning, being plain and clear, is much more accordant with the creed which was certainly written for popular use. There is nothing contrary to it in the Apostle's declaration, that it is appointed unto all men once to die. For though those who are surviving at the last day shall not die after a natural manner, yet the change which they are to undergo, as it shall resemble, is not improperly called death. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Quote, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. What does this mean? Their mortal life shall perish and be swallowed up in one moment and be transformed into an entirely new nature. Though no one can deny that that destruction of the flesh will be death, it still remains true that the quick and the dead shall be summoned to judgment. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For, quote, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, unquote. Indeed, it is probable that these words in the creed were taken from Peter's sermon as related by Luke, Acts 10, verse 42, and from the solemn charge of Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Section 18. It is most consolatory to think that judgment is vested in him who has already destined us to share with him in the honor of judgment, Matthew 19, verse 28. So far is it from being true that he will ascend the judgment seat for our condemnation. How could a most merciful prince destroy his own people? How could the head disperse its own members? How could the advocate condemn his clients? For if the apostle, when contemplating the interposition of Christ, is bold to exclaim, quote, Who is he that condemneth? Unquote, Romans 8, verse 33. Much more certain is it that Christ, the intercessor, will not condemn those whom he has admitted to his protection. It certainly gives no small security that we shall be assisted at no other tribunal than that of our Redeemer, from whom salvation is to be expected, and that he who in the gospel now promises eternal blessedness will then as judge ratify his promise. The end for which the Father has honored the Son by committing all judgment to him, John 5, verse 22, was to pacify the consciences of his people when alarmed at the thought of judgment. Hitherto I have followed the order of the Apostles' Creed, because it states the leading articles of redemption in a few words, and may thus serve as a tablet in which the points of Christian doctrine, most deserving of attention, are brought separately and distinctly before us. I call it the Apostles' Creed, though I am by no means solicitous as to its authorship. The general consent of ancient writers certainly does ascribe it to the Apostles, either because they imagined it was written and published by them for common use, or because they thought it right to give the sanction of such authority to a compendium faithfully drawn up from the doctrine delivered by their hands. I have no doubt that, from the very commencement of the church and therefore in the very days of the apostles, it held the place of a public and universally received confession, whatever be the quarter from which it originally proceeded. It is not probable that it was written by some private individual, since it is certain that, from time immemorial, it was deemed of sacred authority by all Christians. The only point of consequence we hold to be incontrovertible, these, that it gives in clear and succinct order a full statement of our faith, and in everything which it contains is sanctioned by the sure testimony of Scripture. This being understood, it were to no purpose to labor anxiously or quarrel with anyone as to the authorship, unless, indeed, we think it not enough to possess the sure truth of the Holy Spirit, without at the same time knowing by whose mouth it was pronounced, or by whose hand it was written. Section 19. 
when we see that the whole sum of our salvation and every single part of it are comprehended in Christ, we must beware of deriving even the minutest portion of it from any other quarter. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that he possesses it. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, we shall find them in his unction, strength in his government, purity in his conception, indulgence in his nativity, in which he was made like us in all respects, in order that he might learn to sympathize with us. If we seek redemption, we shall find it in his passion, acquittal in his condemnation, remission of the curse in his cross, satisfaction in his sacrifice, purification in his blood, reconciliation in his descent to hell, mortification of the flesh in his sepulchre, newness of life in his resurrection, immortality also in his resurrection, the inheritance of a celestial kingdom in his entrance into heaven, protection, security, and the abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, secure anticipation of judgment and the power of judging committed to him, In fine, since in him all kinds of blessings are treasured up, let us draw a full supply from him, and none from any other quarter. Those who, not satisfied with him alone, entertain various hopes from others, though they may continue to look to him chiefly, deviate from the right path by the simple fact that some portion of their thought takes a different direction. No distrust of this description can arise when once the abundance of his blessings is properly known. Chapter 17 Christ rightly and properly said to have merited grace and salvation for us. There are six sections. Section 1 A question must here be considered by way of supplement. Some men too much given to subtlety, while they admit that we obtain salvation through Christ, will not hear of the name of merit by which they imagine that the grace of God is obscured, and therefore insist that Christ was only the instrument or minister, not the author or leader or prince of life, as he is designated by Peter. Acts 3, verse 15. I admit that were Christ opposed simply and by himself to the justice of God, there could be no room for merit, because there cannot be found in man a worth which could make God a debtor. Nay, as Augustine says most truly, The Savior, the man, Christ Jesus, is himself the brightest illustration of predestination and grace. His character as such was not procured by any antecedent merit of works or faith in his human nature. Tell me, I pray, how that man, when assumed unto unity of person by the word, co-eternal with the Father, as the only begotten Son of God, could merit this, unquote. Quote, Let the very fountain of grace, therefore, appear in our head, whence, according to the measure of each, it is diffused through all his members. Every man, from the commencement of his faith, becomes a Christian, by the same grace by which that man, from his formation, became Christ. Unquote. Again, in another passage, quote, There is not a more striking example of predestination than the mediator himself. He who made him without any antecedent merit in his will of the seed of David a righteous man never to be unrighteous, also converts those who are members of his head from unrighteous into righteous, and so forth. Therefore, when we treat of the merit of Christ, we do not place the beginning in him, but we ascend to the ordination of God as the primary cause, because of his mere good pleasure he appointed a mediator to purchase salvation for us. Hence the merit of Christ is inconsiderately opposed to the mercy of God. It is a well-known rule that principle and accessory are not incompatible, and therefore there is nothing to prevent the justification of man from being the gratuitous result of the mere mercy of God, and at the same time to prevent the merit of Christ from intervening in the subordination to his mercy. The free favor of God is as fitly opposed to our works as is the obedience of Christ both in their order. For Christ could not merit anything save by the good pleasure of God, but only inasmuch as he was destined to appease the wrath of God by his sacrifice, and wipe away our transgressions by his obedience. In one word, since the merit of Christ depends entirely on the grace of God, which provided this mode of salvation for us, the latter is no less appropriately opposed to all righteousness of men than is the former. Section 2. This distinction is found in numerous passages of Scripture. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish. Unquote. John 3.16 We see that the first place is assigned to the love of God as the chief cause or origin, and that faith in Christ follows as the second and more proximate cause. Should anyone object that Christ is only the formal cause, he lessens his energy more than the words justify. For if we obtain justification by a faith which leans on him, the groundwork of our salvation must be sought in him. 
This is clearly proved by several passages. Quote, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Unquote. 1 John 4, verse 10. These words clearly demonstrate that God, in order to remove any obstacle to his love towards us, appointed the method of reconciliation in Christ. There is great force in this word propitiation, for in a manner which cannot be expressed, God at the very time when he loved us was hostile to us until reconciled in Christ. To this effect are all the following passages, quote, He is the propitiation for our sins, unquote. Quote, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace by the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, unquote. Quote, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, unquote. Quote, he hath made us accepted in the beloved, unquote. Quote, that he might reconcile both into one body by the cross, unquote. 1 John 2, verse 2, Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, Ephesians 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 16. The nature of this mystery is to be learned from the first chapter to the Ephesians, where Paul, teaching that we were chosen in Christ at the same time, adds that we obtained grace in him. How did God begin to embrace with his favor those whom he had loved before the foundation of the world, unless in displaying his love when he was reconciled by the blood of Christ? As God is the fountain of all righteousness, he must necessarily be the enemy and judge of man so long as he is a sinner. Wherefore, the commencement of love is the bestowing of righteousness, as described by Paul. Quote, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He intimates that by the sacrifice of Christ we obtain free justification and become pleasing to God though we are by nature the children of wrath and by sin estranged from him. This distinction is also noted whenever the grace of Christ is connected with the love of God, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 13, whence it follows that he bestows upon us of his own which he acquired by purchase, for otherwise there would be no ground for the praise ascribed to him by the Father, that grace is his and proceeds from him. Section 3 that Christ, by his obedience, truly purchased and merited grace for us with the Father is accurately inferred from several passages of Scripture. I take it for granted that if Christ satisfied for our sins, if he paid the penalty due by us, if he appeased God by his obedience, in fine, if he suffered the just for the unjust, salvation was obtained for us by his righteousness, which is just equivalent to meriting. Now Paul's testimony is that we were reconciled and received reconciliation through his death, Romans 5, verse 11. But there is no room for reconciliation unless where offense has preceded. The meaning, therefore, is that God, to whom we were hateful through sin, was appeased by the death of his Son and made propitious to us. And the antithesis, which immediately follows, is carefully to be observed, quote, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, unquote. Romans 5, verse 19. For the meaning is, as by the sin of Adam we were alienated from God and doomed to destruction, so by the obedience of Christ we are restored to his favor as if we were righteous. The future tense of the verb does not exclude present righteousness, as is apparent from the context. For he had previously said, quote, The free gift is of many offenses unto justification, unquote. Section 4. When we say that grace was obtained for us by the merit of Christ, our meaning is that we were cleansed by his blood, that his death was an expiation for sin, quote, His blood cleanses us from all sin, unquote. Quote, This is my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins, unquote. 1 John 1, verse 7, and Luke 22, verse 20. If the effect of his shed blood is that our sins are not imputed to us, it follows that by that price the justice of God was satisfied. To the same effect are the Baptist's words, quote, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, unquote. John 1, verse 29. For he contrasts Christ with all the sacrifices of the law, showing that in him alone was fulfilled what these figures typified. But we know the common expression in Moses, Iniquity shall be expiated, sin shall be wiped away and forgiven. In short, we are admirably taught by the ancient figures what power and efficacy there is in Christ's death. And the apostle, skillfully proceeding from this principle, explains the whole matter in the epistle to the Hebrews, showing that without shedding of blood there is no remission. Hebrews 9, verse 22. 
From this he infers that Christ appeared once for all to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, that he was offered to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9, verse 28. He had previously said that not by the blood of goats or of heifers, but by his own blood he had once entered into the Holy of Holies, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now when he reasons thus, quote, If the blood of bulls and of goats, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Unquote. Hebrews 9, verse 13 and 14. It is obvious that too little effect is given to the grace of Christ, unless we concede to his sacrifice the power of expiating, appeasing, and satisfying. As he shortly after adds, quote, For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of his death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Unquote. Hebrews 9, verse 15. But it is especially necessary to attend to the analogy which is drawn by Paul as to his having been made a curse for us. Galatians 3, verse 13. It had been superfluous and therefore absurd that Christ should have been burdened with a curse, had it not been in order that by paying what others owed, he might acquire righteousness for them. There is no ambiguity in Isaiah's testimony, quote, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 5. For had not Christ satisfied our sins, he could not be said to have appeased God by taking upon himself the penalty which we had incurred. To this corresponds what follows in the same place, quote, For the transgression of my people was he stricken, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 8. We may add the interpretation of Peter, who unequivocally declares that he, quote, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, unquote. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, that the whole burden of condemnation of which we were relieved was laid upon him. Section 5, the apostles also plainly declare that he paid a price to ransom us from death, quote, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, unquote. Romans 3, verses 24 and 25. Paul commends the grace of God in that he gave the price of redemption and the death of Christ, and he exhorts us to flee to his blood that, having obtained righteousness, we may appear boldly before the judgment seat of God. To the same effect are the words of Peter, quote, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, unquote, quote, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, unquote. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. The antithesis would be incongruous if he had not, by this price, made satisfaction for sins, for which reason Paul says, quote, Ye are bought with a price, unquote. Nor could it be elsewhere said there is, quote, One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. Had not the punishment which we deserved been laid upon him, Accordingly, the same apostle declares that, quote, We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, unquote. Colossians 1, verse 14. As if he had said that we are justified or acquitted before God, because that blood serves the purpose of satisfaction. With this, another passage agrees, viz., that he blotted out, quote, The handwriting of ordinances, which was against us, which was contrary to us, unquote. Colossians 2, verse 14. These words denote the payment or compensation which acquits us from guilt. There is great weight also in these words of Paul, quote, If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain, unquote. Galatians 2, verse 21. For we hence infer that it is from Christ we must seek what the law would confer on anyone who fulfilled it, or, which is the same thing, that by the grace of Christ we obtain what God promised in the law to our works, quote, if a man do, he shall live in them, unquote. Leviticus 18, verse 5. This is no less clearly taught in the discourse at Antioch, when Paul declares, quote, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses, unquote. Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. 
For if the observance of the law is righteousness, who can deny that Christ, by taking this burden upon himself, and reconciling us to God, as if we were the observers of the law, merited favor for us? Of the same nature is what he afterwards says to the Galatians, quote, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, unquote. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. For to what end that subjection unless he obtained justification for us by undertaking to perform what we were unable to pay? Hence that imputation of righteousness without works, of which Paul treats, Romans 4, verse 5, the righteousness found in Christ alone being accepted as if it were ours. And certainly the only reason why Christ is called our, quote, meat, unquote, John 6, verse 55, is because we find in him the substance of life. And the source of this efficacy is just that the Son of God was crucified as the price of our justification. As Paul says, Christ, quote, hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, unquote, Ephesians 5, verse 2. And elsewhere he, quote, was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, unquote, Romans 4, verse 25. Hence it is proved not only that salvation was given us by Christ, but that on account of him the Father is now propitious to us. For it cannot be doubted that in him is completely fulfilled what God declares by Isaiah under a figure, quote, I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake, unquote. Isaiah 37, verse 35. Of this the apostle is the best witness when he says, quote, Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake, unquote. 1 John 2, verse 12. For although the name of Christ is not expressed, John, in his usual manner, designates him by the pronoun, quote, he, unquote. Greek word, alpha, epsilon, tau, omicron, sigma, autos. In the same sense also our Lord declares, quote, As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me, unquote. John 6, verse 57. To this corresponds the passage of Paul, quote, Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Unquote. Philippians 1, verse 29. Section 6. To inquire, as Lombard and the schoolmen do, whether he merited for himself his foolish curiosity. Equally rash is their decision when they answer in the affirmative. How could it be necessary for the only Son of God to come down in order to acquire some new quality for himself? The exposition which God gives of his own purpose removes all doubt. The Father is not said to have consulted the advantage of his Son in his services, but to have given him up to death, and not spared him because he loved the world. Romans chapter 8. The prophetical expression should be observed, quote, To us a son is born, unquote. Quote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, unquote. Isaiah 9, verse 6, and Zechariah 9, verse 9. It would otherwise be a cold commendation of love which Paul describes when he says, quote, God commendeth his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, unquote. Romans 5, verse 8. Hence again we infer that Christ had no regard to himself, and this he distinctly affirms when he says, quote, For their sakes I sanctify myself, unquote. John 17, verse 19. He who transfers the benefit of his holiness to others testifies that he acquires nothing for himself. And surely it is most worthy of remark that Christ, in devoting himself entirely to our salvation, in a manner forgot himself. It is absurd to rest the testimony of Paul to a different effect. Quote, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Unquote. Philippians 2 verse 9. By what services could a man merit to become the judge of the world, the head of angels, to obtain the supreme government of God, and become the residence of that majesty of which all the virtues of men and angels cannot attain one thousandth part? The solution is easy and complete. Paul is not speaking of the cause of Christ's exaltation, but only pointing out a consequence of it by way of example to us. The meaning is not much different from that of another passage, quote, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? Unquote. Luke 24, verse 26. End of the second book. Book 3, The Mode of Obtaining the Grace of Christ, the Benefits it Confers, and the Effects Resulting from it. 
argument. The two former books treated of God, the Creator, and Redeemer. This book, which contains a full exposition of the third part of the Apostles' Creed, treats of the mode of procuring the grace of Christ, the benefits which we derive, and the effects which follow from it, are of the operations of the Holy Spirit in regard to our salvation. The subject is comprehended under seven principal heads, which almost all point to the same end, namely, the doctrine of faith. Head number one, as it is by the secret and special operation of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy Christ and all his benefits, the first chapter treats of this operation, which is the foundation of faith, new life, and all holy exercises. Head number two, faith being, as it were, the hand by which we embrace Christ the Redeemer offered to us by the Holy Spirit, Faith is fully considered in the second chapter. Head number three. In further explanation of saving faith and the benefits derived from it, it is mentioned that true repentance always flows from true faith. The doctrine of repentance is considered generally in the third chapter, popish repentance in the fourth chapter, indulgences and purgatory in the fifth chapter. Chapters six to tenth are devoted to a special consideration of the different parts of true repentance, viz., mortification of the flesh, and quickening of the spirit. Head number four. More clearly to show the utility of this faith and the effects resulting from it, the doctrine of justification by faith is explained in the eleventh chapter, and certain questions connected with it explained from the twelfth to the eighteenth chapter. Christian liberty, a kind of accessory to justification, is considered in the nineteenth chapter. Head number five. The twentieth chapter is devoted to prayer, the principal exercise of faith, and, as it were, the medium or instrument through which we daily procure blessings from God. Head number six. As all do not indiscriminately embrace the fellowship of Christ offered in the gospel, but those only whom the Lord favors with the effectual and special grace of his Spirit, lest any should impugn this arrangement, chapters 21st to 24th are occupied with a necessary and apposite discussion of the subject of election. Head number seven. Lastly, as the hard warfare which the Christian is obliged constantly to wage may have the effect of disheartening him, it is shown how it may be alleviated by meditating on the final resurrection. Hence, the subject of the resurrection is considered in the 25th chapter. Chapter one. The benefits of Christ made available to us by the secret operation of the Spirit. There are four sections. Section one. We must now see in what we may become possessed of the blessings which God has bestowed on his only begotten Son, not for private use, but to enrich the poor and needy. And the first thing to be attended to is that, so long as we are without Christ and separated from him, nothing which he suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is of the least benefit to us. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, he must become ours and dwell in us. Accordingly, he is called our head, and the firstborn among many brethren, while, on the other hand, we are said to be engrafted into him and clothed with him, all which he possesses being, as I have said, nothing to us until we become one with him. And although it is true that we obtain this by faith, yet since we see that all do not indiscriminately embrace the offer of Christ which is made by the gospel, the very nature of the case teaches us to ascend higher and inquire into the secret efficacy of the Spirit, to which it is owing that we enjoy Christ and all his blessings. I have already treated of the eternal essence and divinity of the Spirit. See Book 1, Chapter 13, Sections 14 and 15. Let us at present attend to the special point, that Christ came by water and blood, as the Spirit testifies concerning him, that we might not lose the benefits of the salvation which he has purchased. For as there are said to be three witnesses in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, so there are also three on the earth, namely, water, blood, and Spirit. It is not without cause that the testimony of the Spirit is twice mentioned, a testimony which is engraven on our hearts by way of seal, and thus seals the cleansing and sacrifice of Christ. For which reason also Peter says that believers are, quote, elect, unquote, Quote, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, unquote. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. By these words he reminds us that if the shedding of his sacred blood is not to be in vain, our souls must be washed in it by the secret cleansing of the Holy Spirit. For which reason also Paul, speaking of cleansing and purification, says, quote, But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. 
The whole comes to this, that the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually binds us to himself. Here we may refer to what was said in the last book concerning his anointing. Section 2. But in order to have a clearer view of this most important subject, we must remember that Christ came provided with the Holy Spirit at a peculiar manner, namely, that he might separate us from the world and unite us in the hope of an eternal inheritance. Hence the Spirit is called the Spirit of Sanctification, because he quickens and cherishes us, not merely by the general energy which is seen in the human race, as well as other animals, but because he is the seed and root of heavenly life in us. Accordingly, one of the highest commendations which the prophets give to the kingdom of Christ is that under it the Spirit would be poured out in richer abundance. One of the most remarkable passages is that of Joel, quote, that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, unquote. Joel 2, verse 28. For although the prophet seems to confine the gifts of the Spirit to the office of prophesying, he yet intimates under a figure that God will, by the illumination of his Spirit, provide himself with disciples who had previously been altogether ignorant of heavenly doctrine. Moreover, as it is for the sake of his Son that God bestows the Holy Spirit upon us, and yet has deposited him in all his fullness with the Son to be the minister and dispenser of his liberality, he is called at one time the Spirit of the Father, at another the Spirit of the Son. Quote, Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 9. And hence he encourages us to hope for complete renovation. Quote, if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 11. There is no inconsistency in ascribing the glory of those gifts to the Father, inasmuch as he is the author of them, and at the same time ascribing them to Christ, with whom they have been deposited, that he may bestow them on his people. Hence he invites all the thirsty to come unto him and drink. John 7, verse 37. And Paul teaches that, quote, Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 7. And we must remember that the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, not only inasmuch as the eternal Word of God is with the Father united with the Spirit, but also in respect of his office of mediator. Because, had he not been endued with the energy of the Spirit, he had come to us in vain. In this sense, he is called the, quote, last Adam, unquote, and said to have been sent from heaven, quote, a quickening spirit, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, where Paul contrasts the special life which Christ breathes into his people, that they may be one with him, with the animal life which is common even to the reprobate. In like manner, when he prays that believers may have, quote, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, unquote, he at the same time adds, quote, the communion of the Holy Ghost, unquote, without which no man shall ever taste the paternal favor of God or the benefits of Christ. Thus, also in another passage, he says, quote, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us, unquote, Romans 5, verse 5. Section 3. Here it will be proper to point out the titles which the Scripture bestows on the Spirit when it treats of the commencement and entire renewal of our salvation. First, he is called the, quote, Spirit of Adoption, unquote, because he is witness to us of the free favor with which God the Father embraced us in his well-beloved and only begotten Son, so as to become our Father and give us boldness of access to him. Nay, he dictates the very words so that we can boldly cry, quote, Abba, Father, unquote. For the same reason, he is said to have, quote, sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts, unquote, because as pilgrims in the world and persons in a manner dead, he so quickens us from above as to assure us that our salvation is safe in the keeping of a faithful God. Hence also, the Spirit is said to be, quote, life because of righteousness, unquote. But since it is his secret irrigation that makes us bud forth and produce the fruits of righteousness, he is repeatedly described as water. Thus in Isaiah, quote, Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, unquote. Again, quote, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground, unquote. Corresponding to this are the words of our Savior, to which I lately referred, quote, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, unquote. 
Sometimes, indeed, he receives this name from his energy in cleansing and purifying, as in Ezekiel, where the Lord promises, quote, Then I will sprinkle you with clean water, and ye shall be clean, unquote. As those sprinkled with the Spirit are restored to the full vigor of life, he hence obtains the names of, quote, oil, unquote, and, quote, unction, unquote. On the other hand, as he is constantly employed in subduing and destroying the vices of our concupiscence and inflaming our hearts with the love of God and piety, he hence receives the name of fire. In fine, he is described to us as a fountain, whence all heavenly riches flow to us, or as the hand by which God exerts his power because by his divine inspiration he so breathes divine life into us that we are no longer acted upon by ourselves but ruled by his motion and agency so that everything good in us is the fruit of his grace while our own endowments without him are mere darkness of mind and perverseness of heart already indeed it has been clearly shown that until our minds are intent on the spirit Christ is in a manner unemployed, because we view him coldly without us and so at a distance from us. Now we know that he is of no avail, save only to those to whom he is a head and the firstborn among the brethren, to those in fine who are clothed with him. To this union alone it is owing that in regard to us the Savior has not come in vain. To this is to be referred that sacred marriage by which we become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and so one with him. Ephesians 5, verse 30, For it is by the Spirit alone that he unites himself to us. By the same grace and energy of the Spirit we become his members, so that he keeps us under him, and we in our turn possess him. Section 4 But as faith is his principal work, all those passages which express his power and operations are, in a great measure, referred to it as it is only by faith that he brings us to the light of the gospel, as John teaches that to those who believe in Christ is given the privilege, quote, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, unquote, John 1, verse 12. Opposing God to flesh and blood, he declares it to be a supernatural gift that those who would otherwise remain in unbelief receive Christ by faith. Similar to this is our Savior's reply to Peter, quote, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, unquote. Matthew 16, verse 17. These things I now briefly advert to, as I have fully considered them elsewhere. To the same effect, Paul says to the Ephesians, quote, Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 13. Thus showing that he is the internal teacher by whose agency the promise of salvation, which would otherwise only strike the air or our ears, penetrates into our minds. In like manner, he says to the Thessalonians, quote, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. By this passage briefly reminding us that faith itself is produced only by the Spirit. This John explains more distinctly, quote, We know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us, unquote. Again, quote, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Unquote. 1 John 3, verse 24, and 4, verse 13. Accordingly, to make his disciples capable of heavenly wisdom, Christ promised them, quote, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Unquote. John 14, verse 17. And he assigns it to him, as his proper office, to bring to remembrance the things which he had verbally taught. For in vain were light offered to the blind, did not that spirit of understanding open the intellectual lie, so that he himself may be properly termed the key by which the treasures of the heavenly kingdom are unlocked, and his illumination, the eye of the mind by which we are enabled to see. Hence Paul so highly commends the ministry of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 since teachers would cry aloud to no purpose, did not Christ, the internal teacher, by means of his Spirit, draw to himself those who are given him of the Father. Therefore, as we have said that salvation is perfected in the person of Christ, so, in order to make us partakers of it, he baptizes us, quote, with the Holy Spirit and with fire, unquote. Luke 3, verse 16, enlightening us into the faith of his gospel, and so regenerating us to be new creatures. Thus cleansed from all pollution, he dedicates us as holy temples to the Lord. 
This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.